This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Columbia University Press, publisher of The Ages of Globalization by Jeffrey D. Sachs. In this book, Jeffrey D. Sachs, renowned economist and expert on sustainable development, turns to world history to shed light on how we can meet the challenges and opportunities of the 21st century. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, LARB's editor-at-large, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined remotely today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. And today we have two interviews. The first one is with Hirokazu Kurita about his movie, The Truth, which just came out recently. And the second is with translator Joyce Zonana about a novel that she's been working to translate for a very long time and is finally out from NYRB Classics. It's called Malakwa. Yeah, so the first, I recorded an interview with Hirokazu Kurita in March, right before the pandemic started, and we discussed this new movie, which is very, very French, which is also why we wanted to pair it with Joyce Zonana, who had translated a French author, Henri Bosco. Okay, what does very French mean to you? Okay, very French means to me featuring Catherine Deneuve, Juliette <laughs> uh-huh. Deneuve, <laughs> and a lot of smoking and sort of chilly family relationships. Mm. That seems French to me. And that's what the movie is about, though. There's, there are moments that are extremely, extremely, extremely warm. And is that when Ethan Hawke comes in? Mm, no, but that's another French part where the American is really a buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But it's a, it's a very sweet movie. It's about a mother and daughter. It's about an autobiography that Catherine Deneuve's character writes and that Juliette Binoche really disagrees with. And it's sort of about a, a dispersed family finally kind of coming together. And chilly family relationships also feature in this uh, novel that Joyce... So Nana translated. That's true. But there are no American buffoons. Luckily, yeah. We'll hear about that in the second half of this show. But right now, let's get to the interview about Corrieta's The Truth. We have Hirokazu Corrieta on the line with us today. Kurita is a writer and filmmaker. He's born in Tokyo, Japan. He made his directorial debut in 1995 and has gone on to great acclaim since. His films include Afterlife, Distance, Nobody Knows, Like Father, Like Son, Our Little Sister, After the Storm, and others. His film Shoplifters won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival last year. His latest film and his first feature shot outside of Japan is called The Truth, La Vérité, in French, and it is starring two French film legends, Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche. It will premiere in the United States on March 20th. In The Truth, the new film, Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche play a mother-daughter duo reuniting for the publication of a memoir. Deneuve plays Fabienne, an aging but fierce French movie star, and Juliette Binoche is her daughter, Lumire, who has come to Paris from New York with her husband and their young daughter. Mother and daughter are sharply and painfully at odds and playfully at odds, as Lumiere takes issue with Fabienne's version of the past. 
The film also follows Fabienne as she films a new movie, also about a relationship between mother and daughter. Thank you so much, Hirokazu, for being with us. Please, thank you. So first, I just want to ask you, how did you come to this particular story, and what made you pursue it? Actually, the first story idea that I had is a little bit different from the film that everyone will be seeing. I had set the story originally in Japan as a stage play that I wrote 17 years ago, and it took place in a dressing room where an aging actress is waiting to take the stage herself. But I had been in discussions with Juliette Binoche for some time because she had expressed a persistent interest in working with me on some kind of a project. And the idea came to me that I could rewrite the stage play, setting it in France. It would still star an aging actress, but it would also star her daughter, who wound up abandoning a career as an actress. And it would explore the conflict between the mother and daughter, along with the persistent presence of a ghost of someone who had died years ago. And I began writing this adaptation five years ago. So something that's really interesting to me is how you gained insight into the relationship between a mother and a daughter. Because as a daughter, you know, it's quite recognizable. But I wondered if that was visible to somebody who's not in that relationship. And so I also wondered, did you ever consider making this between a father and son? Or was there something particularly about the mother-daughter relationship that fascinated you? So very often when filmmaker creates, writes a family drama, they'll base it on their own parents or siblings or children or their own family dynamics. But in fact, with this, I wasn't really writing it as a family drama per se, but I was really writing it about the lead role as an aging actress and then also her daughter, who chose not to become an actress. And so I actually started by extensively interviewing Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche about their relationship to acting. At the time that I first wrote the original stage play, I had just finished filming Nobody Knows, and as you know, it's a film about children, but I could see very quickly that between boys and girls, they took a radically different approach to the process of acting, and that the girls were actually much more kind of intuitively skilled at it. And I could see this when a girl would come on to set, and she would just instantly, effortlessly be transformed into performing self. And so when I decided that I wanted to make a stage play about acting, I knew intuitively that it would have to feature an actress. Oh, that's so interesting. And did Juliette Binoche or Catherine Deneuve say something about acting that was surprising to you that you did not expect to hear? Yes, they were interesting insights from both, I would say. In the case of Catherine Deneuve, as you can imagine from her incredibly distinguished career, she still loves films and goes to the theater to see new films every week. But in fact, 
She actually doesn't really like to talk about acting per se or how she develops a character. All she really wants to talk about is her opinions on which films and restaurants are good and bad. That's how she expresses herself. Juliette Binoche, on the other hand, really is invested in taking the time and the many takes on set to perfect a character. And so what she talks about that has always stayed with me is, she said, acting is not lying. It's actually much closer to faith. You believe in something that is invisible, like God, and your belief serves to persuade people in the audience that it is visible and real. And so it's not lying, it's about believing. That's what Juliet Pinochet had to say. Interesting. Well, that actually brings me to the next question, which was about the title. So the title is La Verité, which is the truth. And that sort of makes sense in terms of what Binoche said about acting, how it isn't lying. But why were you thinking about the truth? Why is that what this film is called? Originally, my idea was to start the film with the actress's memoir. Supposedly, a memoir is filled with the truth, but in fact, the book is packed with lies. And so I was interested in kind of titling a memoir filled with lies and ironically call it the truth. So in a sense, I made a film about lying that's titled The Truth. Mm. So something that the film made me think about, particularly in terms of acting and the relationship between Fabienne and her daughter, is if the truth is possible or is everything an interpretation? Is everything the way that we choose to remember it? Or is there some form of the truth? Do you think that there's one way in which that you lean towards? Ah, so I would say that between the mother and the daughter, towards the end of the film, they perform for each other. And by performing for each other, they're able to step into the next stage of their relationship with each other by narrowing the gulf that separates them somewhat in some ways. And I guess what I was trying to suggest is that, and additionally, neither realizes that the other is performing for them. So in that sense, it's the performing for each other, which seems to be the opposite of truth that actually can lead to some kind of reparations between the two of them. So it's really about performance mm -hmm. leading to reparation and therefore to a certain kind of actually authentic truth between them. Interesting. So in the film, there are instances where Juliette Binoche's character seems to remember something and then somebody tells her, you know, it actually wasn't quite like that. And they tell her what it was like. And so there's the sense that you can't fully trust your memory. Is there something from your past, from your childhood, where you you remembered it one way and then somebody told you, no, it wasn't like that at all. It was like this. Oh. 
、でも誰にでもあるんじゃないの,あの自分でも確かに、その、まあ、Well, I think that in fact, probably everyone has that kind of experience of a memory turning out to be not quite as we thought it was. For instance, my older sister and I have very different memories of who my father was.、Hmm. And we especially discovered that after he died, as we talked about him, she and I remember a very, very different person. And even within myself, I have. My memories of him changed between the time that he passed and the time that I became a father myself. And so、mm. I'm aware of how my own memories can shift inside me. And I was just fascinated by that aspect of memory. So, something that is in the film is another film. Catherine Deneuve's character is playing. The daughter of a woman who otherwise lives in space, but she comes visits every seven years. There's obviously a connection between what's happening in Catherine Deneuve's character's life and Fabienne's life and the character that she's playing in the film within the film. But how did you end up with this particular story of the film within the film? Seventeen years ago, in the stage play that I originally wrote about the Japanese aging actress, I was having her perform a role in a stage adaptation of Raymond Carver's Cathedral. But as I rewrote the stage play as a script for Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche as a mother and a daughter, I knew that I needed to change. The role that Catherine Deneuve would be playing as an actress. And I wanted to also be aware of the fact that one character who never appears in the film has been dead for decades. And so when I read many, many stories and books about mother daughter relationships, I came across Ken Liu's. I'm sorry, I'm not 100% sure if it's a story or a book, and I think it's called Mother's Memory, but you'll have to fact check that. And Ken Liu's Tale, the daughter ages and becomes ultimately much older than the mother because the mother doesn't age because she's spending time in space. And so there was a parallel that in both situations, the actress and Fabienne, Catherine Deneuve, was being left behind by someone who never ages one because they're in space, one because they're dead.、Mm. And so once I read that story, I knew this was the one for me. Could you tell us about working with Catherine Deneuve, who is, you know, of course, a legend in film, and also making a film about film? <laughs> well, it was a very, very stimulating experience working with Catherine Deneuve. She is constantly moving. At a kind of a dizzying speed for us mere mortals to keep up with. She's always conversing, always moving, and she has a childlike delight when a take goes well. So she just is thrilled by any time she gives a good performance. But on the other hand, she can't wait to leave if she has a dinner date and sometimes just walks off set to be on time for her dinner date. So she's. <laughs> Extremely open about her many desires. But the mysterious thing is that after almost three months of working together, everybody on the cast and the crew had fallen in love with her and become a great fan.、Mm-hmm. So 
she's that kind of enigmatic person. I'm going to ask him now about making a film about a film. まああのななぜその劇中劇をあの入れたかった。I was interested in exploring the ways in which as Fabian is performing as an actress in a science fiction film. Fabian's real life and real personality, or possibly also her daughter's, starts to seep into her performance.、Mm. And also, just the opposite, the ways that her performing begins to seep into her real life. I was interested in that kind of dual, kind of seeping into each other. Hirokazu Koreeda, thank you so, so much for talking with us, and congratulations on the movie. It's a really beautiful, beautiful movie, and I hope many people see it. Thank you. You are listening to the Valarb Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Hirokazu Koreeda, whose new film is The Truth. We now turn to our conversation with Joyce Anana, translator of Malakwa. Today we're joined by writer and translator Joyce Zonana. She's the author of a memoir called Dream Homes From Cairo to Katrina and Exile's Journal, and she's the recipient of various prizes for her translations. Her latest translation is a 1948 French novel called Malacroix by Henri Bosco, recently released for the first time in English by the New York Review of Books Classics series. Henri Bosco published dozens of books of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays, and was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature four times. Malacroix, the novel, follows a young man to a harsh remote island in France, where he's supposed to claim his great uncle's inheritance. Both the island and the circumstances of his presence there are mythic and mysterious, and under the rules of the will, he has to spend three months there in solitude. Joyce Zonana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, Joyce, I had never heard of Henri Bosco, and I'm curious just to learn a little bit more about him.、Uh, what you know, how popular he was within his own time, or kind of respected and, and known. And also, how you came to him、um, as an author, you wanted to translate, right? So he was and remains、um, a popular writer in France. He lived from 1888 to 1976, and he published something like 30 novels. One of his books, published in 1945, has been classified as a children's book. It's called L'Enfant et la Rivière, The Child and the River. That book has sold three million copies in France, and it's never gone out of print. It's if you talk to almost any French person, they've read that book. So he's a familiar figure in France. Some of his books have been translated into English. They were translated in the 1950s. Maybe three novels were translated in the 1950s, including *The Child and the River*. I came across Malicroix. Totally randomly, through reading a book called *The Poetics of Space* by Gaston Bachelard, which is a philosophical study of how we relate to intimate space, it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And 
I read it when I was about 19 and was completely taken by it. I read it in English, although it was originally published in French. And the evidence that he uses to talk about how people relate to space is the work of poets and novelists. And the one novelist that he refers to most often is Henri Bosco. And the one book that he quotes from the most is Malikwa. So I read Bachelard. I was fascinated by everything he said. And I was really fascinated by his quotes from Malikois. He called Malikois a vast prose poem, a book that he returned to again and again. And so I wanted to read it. And I thought I could find it in English. I didn't. I came across it in French. I read it in French. I didn't understand it. I read it again. And I decided that in order to understand it, I needed to translate it. So that's how I got started. Wow, that's um, fascinating. Sort of, um, it's sort of crazy, yeah. No, I, it's I crazy. Think it's, and I, it's crazy. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's sort of, sort of random, right? It's sort of, and I, I was just so taken by it. And again, I didn't really know what it was that I was taken by. I didn't fully understand it. The French was hard. But I set myself this task, and I started it when I was in my early 20s, and I didn't get published until this year. So it was quite, quite um, almost 50 years ago that I started it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And so why, why did it take this long? What was the project like? Okay, so when I started, I, I didn't know anything about translation, but I just wanted to do it, and I worked on it. And I did probably in around, I think it was 1975 or 76, I took a course in translation at the City University of New York. And my instructor really encouraged me with the project. And so I wrote to a handful of publishers, New Directions, Grove, Knopf, Farrar Strauss, and I sent them a sample, and they all wrote back to me and said, this is very lovely, but there is absolutely no market for it in the United States. That was that. And so I was in my early 20s, and it was a bit of a damper, right? It was pretty discouraging. Mm -hmm. And so I put it away and went to graduate school in English, got a PhD in English, and it's not that I didn't think about it. It was always there. I always carried the book with me. I read the book again many times over the years. I carried my little rejection letters. I carried my sample translation with me. I didn't finish it back then. And it wasn't until 2012 when I was eligible for a sabbatical at my teaching position that I decided to pull this out as my sabbatical project and I went back to it. So it was kind of in the background for a very long time. And part of what made it come into the foreground again is that I had been living in New Orleans uh, for 15 years and I was there for Hurricane Katrina. And after Katrina, I was something of a displaced person and came back to New York City, 
was living in a tiny studio apartment in New York City. And my brother had this little house in upstate New York that he wasn't using. And I started coming to this house and spending a lot of time by myself in this house. And I started thinking about this house as like the house in Malikwa. So this house was a shelter for me. It was an old house. It is an old house. It's a house that, that has withstood a lot. And as I came to inhabit it, I think I really came to understand more about the novel and the character in the novel living by himself in a house in the middle of nowhere. Well, we should say also that the the book is um, the kind of the main the main plot point is that a young man is going to inherit a distant relative's house, but to exactly. inherit his house and his land, he has to. Um, vowed to stay there by himself on this island for three months where there's absolutely nothing. And the descriptions of right. the landscape are, are really, you know, amazing and just paint it. So in the region is the, I don't, I'm going to butcher the French, the Camargue. The Camargue. Camargue. The Camargue. It's just like um, it looks. And, yeah. And so it's depicted as this just really barren region with, with nothing. And, um, so he he has to to be there alone, and as they, it's kind of set up as a as a um, as a gothic novel, right? It's there's there's mystery, there's intrigue, but so much of it is um, really just about his experience and how and writing this experience of nature and yourself and perception and the self, and, yeah. And, and that's and, and, and so I'm it's really interesting that it was quoted so much in Poetics of Space because on the surface of it, it also seems like a, more of a genre novel, like almost like an old fashioned type of novel, especially mm. to be published in the in the late 40s. I wonder if you could talk about that that aspect of it, that it has this kind of adventurer plot from that seems like something from the century past. But then also there's so much of just writing of experience without any other person involved. Right. The novel is set in the early, in in some unspecified time in the early 19th century. And really, I think of it as sort of a mythic, timeless story, right? That it, it, it doesn't refer to any historical moment, right? It's outside of time and in a way outside of space. Um, because the Camargue is an area that's completely unconnected to the rest of France and even unconnected to the rest of Europe. It's a very isolated place. So so I, I think of it as a mythic novel, very much so. And I never thought of it as a Gothic until reviewers started calling it a Gothic. And I, I understand why people see it that way but for me the story was much less important than the process somehow and the the descriptions and the psychological exploration that the main character goes through but it is it it is sort of like a haunted house story in some way too does that answer your question yeah yeah and I, I'm, I'm curious um Another thing I was, you know, it's it's so much about solitude and the kind of menace mm-hmm. of solitude. And, of course, you know, it, it makes me think of Walden 
in the United mm. States published almost mm-hmm. 100 years before. And how I, I think in America, there's something very uh, noble about the idea of being alone and being out in the, in the wilderness. Um, and it seemed just from the outset that this is, uh, in this book, it's, that's not, that's a very frightening thing just right away to the character and everyone around right. is cautioning him. Um, and I was wondering if that, if you think that's cultural at all, if that reflects kind of different ideas that, um, Well, yeah, I mean, I think in France, they didn't, they don't have the idea of man in the wilderness, right, that we have, right? They don't have that, that sense. um, uh, When you think of France, you think of little villages and very civilized social life, right? And when you think of the United States, we have this whole individual individualism. So I think for a French person to go off and be by themselves is a little bit unusual. And and so Marshall, the, the main character, his his family is horrified at the idea that he's going to go off and, and be in this place by himself. And the great uncle who bequeaths the house and the island to him, part of his strangeness is that he has lived a life of solitude in the wilderness, and that's not considered normal at all. Whereas for us, I think it is more of a, of a trope, right, of a way to be. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about the book is, as you say, yeah, there's this mythic quality to it. There are actual myths in it, too. Um, yes, there are. And, and its ahistoricity is also interesting partly because I was surprised to see, you know, I, I started reading it and I'd quickly skimmed on Rie Bosco's uh, mm-hmm. biography, but, and I was really surprised to see that it was published in 1948. Right. Because of this right. ahistoricity. Right. Um, and I was also surprised to see that he had fought in World War One. Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, and in some ways that puts the book into a different kind of perspective because this is this place frightening, but I could also see it as a kind of refuge from the massive historicity mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. surrounded him his entire life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think yeah. surrounded Bosco, you mean? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yes. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's true that in most of his writing, he chose very internal psychological explorations, right? He, he studiously avoided um, political engagement in his writing, um, though I think he was in his way politically engaged in his life. I've been talking with some friends about the book lately, and one of my friends is suggesting that in going to this place, um, Marshal Megrimu is sort of reclaiming part of his identity, right? He's reconnecting with mm-hmm. his uncle, which is a part of himself. And so my friends were suggesting that we could also read it perhaps as um, a metaphor or an image of the French reclaiming their identity after the occupation, after the war. Mm. So 
there's a possibility to read it that way. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Interesting. Right, he's, yeah. 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 Because he does think a lot about his connection to this land his through his great uncle. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, his connection to this great uncle, we should say, is fictional, right? He describes kind of imagining these encounters with him, walking with him at the very beginning. And right. he says, but these were fictions. I, and I had right. to make do with fictions. And right. So his right. connection to his past, he's also sort of inventing. He is. Or reinventing. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. He's, he's creating himself in a way, right? He's yeah. creating an identity for himself by choosing to stay in this place that he really doesn't know why he's there, right? He doesn't really know. Doesn't know the uncle, doesn't know the uncle's story, doesn't know anything. But yet it's important to him. There's something, he knows there's something there for him. And so he's gone to find out. Because he says something like that, right? I, I knew that there was something to discover in this inheritance. There was something to discover. Right. Something else yeah. that struck me while reading it is there's something about the story that is very queer in terms mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the people in it um, mm -hmm. and their relationships and their intimacy with each other. Mm -hmm. So... Mm-hmm. Marshall is not there completely alone. There's um, sort of a, a servant all-around handyman mm -hmm. who lives on this island, <laughs> who's also sort of mythical. Mm -hmm. um, and the intimacy that seems to... And uh, there's some other... Another man... Mm -hmm. A few other men come to the island. I do think people should just read the book because it's almost... <laughs> It feels like right. silly to talk about the plot in a way, but, uh, and there's this intimacy between yes. these men yes. that is, that struck me, you know, as homosocial or mm -hmm. potentially mm -hmm. like the servant and the great uncle had been mm -hmm. in a loving relationship with each other, Absolutely. had lived in such, yeah. So I was wondering what you thought about the, the queer aspects of this novel as you were translating it and, and how to maybe put because so much of that is it's underneath the surface, that how does one translate what's underneath the surface in French to not well, be completely explicit English or render some of these uh, complicated relationships? Well, I think, I mean, there's a point in the novel where it's very clear that Marshall loves Ballandron, the, the servant character. I, yeah. I, calling him a servant is really not the right word. He's, it isn't. What is he? An uncle? I don't, I don't know what he is. He's, he, yeah. he's part of the place. You know, he's an mm -hmm. intimate part of the place. He's, he's a shepherd. He takes care of the sheep. And he, you know, takes care of the house a little bit. But I, I would never call him a servant. So just that in and of itself, right, suggests a different kind of relationship. But anyway, there's a point at which he, 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 they, they, they acknowledge silently, but they acknowledge their love for each other. And it's a very deep love. And it, there's a choice that Marshall has to make at one point. Um, and I guess I don't want to give that away, but um, when he's making that choice, it's very, very painful for him because he loves the old man so much. And 
Ballandron is, is an old man and Marshall is a young man. So that's an important aspect of what's going on between them. Um, and then there's another man, um, Uncle Rat, um, and he is characterized as queer, I think very explicitly. Um, what to make of it? I don't know what to make of it. Um, I think it's just there. I think it's just part of the texture of, of um, maybe Busco's honesty about relationships, right? That and because there are intimate relationships of all kinds. I mean, it's a book about solitude, but it's also a book about relationship. And the main character has many relationships and we see them and we see a great deal of tenderness between him and the other members of his family and also outside people. Now, of course, I have to ask, Please. just at this particular time, if you've thought at all about the novel differently, um, or if you, you know, if your conversations with people have included comparisons to a life where so many people now are sequestered, um, not, you know, not not everyone under, or not most under the the same kind of circumstances as the character in this novel, obviously, but um, where where a more common trait now is kind of being alone, being stuck, um, where that where that has become such a common denominator of potential readers of this novel. If it's made you think about any of the themes in it any differently, yes. But as one person pointed out to me. He is alone in this house and he has no books. <laughs> he has no right. books. He has no internet. He has no Zoom, right? He has none of the things that we all have to maybe take us away from ourselves. I mean, he is absolutely with himself. There's a dog, there's a fire, there's Ballondron. But the connection with Ballandron is only very intermittent. So he spends hours and hours and hours by himself and pages and pages and pages describing those hours by himself. So I think it's a book that perhaps we can appreciate more fully now that we are, many of us, in that kind of solitude ourselves. And he doesn't it, it happens to him. It's not something that he plans, right? It's something that happens to him. And this is something that's happened to us. And we get to choose how we're going to approach it and what we're going to make of it. And so I think maybe he's he can be a kind of model for some of us in, in doing very well with the time and the space that he has. I don't know. Does that make any sense to you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'm can I, I just want to say that after um, this 50 year or whatever it is process that I've been through with um, first encountering the book and now having it out in English is it's really thrilling to me to be able to share it with people because it's a book that has meant so much to me. And I'm really delighted that other people are reading it. Thank you so much, Joyce, for, for speaking with us today. It's, Thank it's you. A really, it's, a, it's a beautiful novel. Congratulations, Joyce. Thank you so much for sharing it Thank with you. Us. Thank you. We've been speaking with Joyce Zernana, translator of Henry Bosco's Malacroix. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 